It has been a big commercial hit, and it has what in the industry they call legs. A lot of movies open big on the weekend, certainly superhero movies, but sometimes they fall off pretty quickly. It could, the box office could drop 50% from the first weekend to the second. This film has held up extremely well as you and I are speaking, and so that works in its favor. And what really works in its favor is not all superhero movies are created equal in the sense that some of them are just meant to be big box office, popcorn eating and so on. But as you and I said at the outset, the fact that the audience was so attentive, so devoted, this film has a kind of special following, you know, more emotional following than most of them do. For that reason, I think there'll be momentum to certainly give it, a, you know, Academy Award consideration. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and the Banshees of Inisharan. And starting with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. So Mike, this was a movie that had a lot of people eager for it to come out. First one was so popular. And my theater was absolutely packed. And to me, it seemed like the whole movie was a long primal scream of grief at the passing of Chadwick Boseman. And I thought that the real life situation behind the scenes that he really was gone, like the character was gone, really sort of informed the movie in terms of its emotional backdrop. What were your first impressions of the movie, Mike? Marie, I saw the film with an audience identical, I would say, to what you experienced. It was a large crowd and it was really quiet. And I mean, quiet in the sense of attentive. People really took it seriously. And so the somber tone was immediately established. And that was the main thing I was wondering heading into this film, namely that the first Black Panther had come out in 2018. Chadwick Boseman passed away in, in 2020. And now as this film comes out, there would have been enormous anticipation in any event. But people wondered, how will they handle this? And I have to say, I was really impressed by the fact that the film not only acknowledged the passing of his character, who, of course, is the king in the film, but did it with such finesse. It really was handled extremely well. And so that was really, for me, a kind of pivot in terms of this franchise. After all, it is Wakanda forever. So I think we have more films on the way. But the pivot was essentially with his passing and all the authority he had in the early scenes of this film, power has passed at this moment to the queen, the queen mother, if you will, the Angela Bassett character. And what happens within the franchise is it goes from being, uh, let's say, a patriarchal setup to a matriarchal one. It's, it seems to me that as the uh, torch is handed off, if you will, it goes to her and her generation. But then more crucially, what you find in the film is very quickly, just a few more scenes in, in a way, you have the torch being passed or, or preparing to pass it to a younger generation of women. That's the point I'm making, essentially. By way of gender, there's a kind of gender switch here. The king is dead. Not only long live the queen, but then, you know, without spoiling anything in the story, where, where the, the power will go from there. And it's to younger female characters. Now, uh, much as I, I like this film, and I did for various reasons, and, and much as I admire the fact that the passing of the actor and the course of that character is given, you know, extreme importance in the film, I think there's a downside to it. And it's not, it's not a significant downside, but the downside is, well, first of all, we'll always miss him. I mean, that, that's a presence that's just there, or in a sense, not there. But what I'm really getting at is the fact that, as you would expect, as they acknowledge his passing, the king's passing, great sorrow, there's a kind of ponderous tone to a lot of the line readings, to a lot of the delivery, and it's totally warranted, believe me, and I share in that. I mean, emotionally, it's, it's very effective. 
But it also, it casts a sort of pall over the entire film, even much later scenes that are not straight on about the king and so on. There's a certain aura to the film of uh, not just importance, but a kind of self-importance. And what I'm getting at is there's some later dialogue exchanges where you could drive a car between the words. You know what I mean? Like a, a, as people are speaking, there's a kind of intonation. And this happens on a film set. There's a certain tone that's established, right? And the actors kind of get into that vibe. And again, it is warranted here, but it's pushed to such an extreme that uh, one reason why the film has a relatively long running time is just simply that it, it, it has that somber quality, even in scenes that don't necessarily warrant it. And it seems to me the film could have that importance without constantly reminding us of the importance. Marie, how do you feel about that? Because for me, it's my only major reservation about a film that I otherwise like in all sorts of ways. Well, I want to second what you said about the mood in the theater, because, of course, everybody's sitting down and getting settled with their popcorn and everything. They People talked all the way through all the previews. But the minute that movie started, you could have heard a pin drop. And like I said, it was a really full theater. I think this is the first time since lockdown has changed that I actually had someone sitting next to me in the theater. You know, I mean, that's how crowded it was. But, you know, you, like I said, you could have heard a pin drop, even though it was a very long movie. I felt kind of similarly that it seemed almost like a pause, like they needed to stop and acknowledge what had happened to the Chadwick Boseman character. And they do a wonderful job with that. The opening scene with the Marvel logo coming in and everything. No music. First time they, they'd ever done that. And all of the images appearing behind the letters were all images of Chadwick Boseman. So it sets the scene immediately and addresses the death of the character and gives everybody a moment to sort of reflect on the passing of this wonderful actor. Then you have the whole movie and then they come back to it, you know, for another touchstone, you know, to remember that he's gone. And, you know, there was uh, people were crying, but it was very much of a piece that was meant to recognize his achievements and make sure everybody had a chance to, you know, say goodbye in a way cinematically. And then the, well, the reason I said pause is because, you know, once they sort of established that, I feel like a lot of the movie was devoted to setting up what will be the third Black Panther movie, because I think they had planned all along that there would be three of them. And I think with this one, one of the things that was a little, I'm with you 100% about, you know, it's, it's interesting that they've changed it over to, you know, Long Live the Queen, etc. But the story seemed like they may have just, it felt sort of thrown together because they weren't expecting to have to go that direction. They thought they were going to have Chadwick Boseman for three movies. What did you think? Well, I'm agreeing with you completely here because it's a combination of those ponderous line readings. And oftentimes when you get a ponderous line reading, also the, the musical score, which again is very effective, but not exactly subtle, will sort of hit hard on a note, right? Just as the character pauses. And it's like, okay, I, I appreciate the gravitas, but sometimes a bit too much of that, I, I would say. But that's linked to what you're saying right now, namely that the film is very fully plotted. One might almost say overplotted. So the handing off of the torch, if you will, of, of the legacy, okay, for, from the, the strong king to the strong queen. And then again, without any spoilers, several younger female characters who will figure prominently to some extent in this film. But Marie, you're absolutely right. You know that they're actually sort of sowing the seeds for the future installments. You can see exactly how certain younger characters will have prominent roles in wh whatever comes next. 
And when you get that kind of a combination, what happens is you can find yourself feeling as if the present film, which runs, uh, you know, 161 minutes. So, so you know, in, by superhero standards, it's sort of the norm. It's still a relatively long film. But the point is, as you're watching it, you oftentimes will feel through much of the film that it's sort of an extended prologue. It's sort of setting the stage, as you say, for whatever's going to come next. And I have, at best, mixed feelings about that. I, I, I like to have films that can really stand on their own. And this one does, but it's commenting on the previous film. It's setting us up for the next one. And so Maria used the perfect word choice. There's a kind of pause sensibility here where you feel like, okay, they're acknowledging what came before, they're prepping for what comes next, but we have the present moment, which, you know, again, that's part of my reservation about the film itself. So it always held my interest, but it wasn't always entirely satisfying. Let's put it that way. Now, there were some things I thought were fun about the movie. I loved all of the scenery, you know, the magic plants, the underwater world, the mutants, you know, the themes of harnessing power and internalizing rage. All of those are, are great stories for a superhero movie. What did you think were the high watermarks, Mike? <laughs> high watermarks is the way <laughs> to put it, actually. The high watermarks, ironically, are underwater for me. What I like so much about the film was the fact that there's the kingdom we're already familiar with from the first film. But the second film establishes the presence of an underwater kingdom, which has a fascinating backstory that in the 16th century, you know, a Mesoamerican tribe is being driven back by the Spanish colonizers and not being driven back in this case so much as driven under. They take to the water, they take underwater, and you end up with a sort of Mayan Atlantis. And I thought both visually and thematically, it was really beautifully realized. It was really just, you know, a pleasure to watch that and just gave me a lot to mull over. It was like a different mythic realm, if you will. And I actually really enjoyed all those underwater scenes. And that kind of interplay between the kingdoms is something that actually does have me looking forward to whatever installments lie ahead, because you realize the potential there of the mythic lineage we're already aware of from the first Black Panther, but now to an even greater extent, this other world. And they are both competing for having to deal with uh, vibranium, this, this rare mineral. And so that brings in a sort of geopolitical consideration, which this film does deal with quite extensively, but you can see how in future installments that could play out even more because, you know, it's not just these two kingdoms, one against the other, but there's that larger outside world, which might well want more of this mineral wealth. So you can see how, again, this film is prepping us for a lot of potentially interesting films ahead. I will give them that vibranium sounds a lot more like a logical mineral than the unobtainium of the Avatar world. Mike, what did you think about, you know, how things sort of come in sequences, you know, a certain kind of movie gets made and then all of a sudden, you know, there's more than one, almost like your favorite word zeitgeist, like it's, it's just time for the story to be told. Did you find yourself when you were watching Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, thinking about the woman king? Because I did. I kept thinking about the strength training, the, you know, the sort of fascination with it, you know, changing from all male protagonists to female. I kind of wanted the two worlds to collide. <laughs> I want to have a New Year's resolution, not to use the word zeitgeist again, but I don't think I'll keep it for more in the few days. So since you mentioned the word, I'll just call it the Z word. Since you mentioned the, the Z word, you're absolutely right. When you think about this kind of film, you could see a sort of mashup between this and, you know, Woman King type storylines. And that just is very much in alignment with our cultural interests now. And by way of storybook material or comic book material or superhero material, you can see all the potential for that in terms of not only having strong female protagonists, but with the nature of 
franchises today, and, and certainly with a sort of uh, multiverse sensibility, you can see how these things could be potentially interwoven. Now, here's the fly in the ointment, potentially. One of the really nifty aspects of the first Black Panther was that it was really self-contained. It creates its own mythos, if you will. The second one, I think, more or less still has that, though with this underwater kingdom, it's kind of expanding the boundaries a little bit. One of the concerns I have is, as you introduce additional significant characters, whether female or not, additional characters, and also those geopolitical considerations, you also open up the possibility, not a welcome one, but you open it up of namely a, a kind of a crossover from franchise to franchise. I mean, who's who's that swimming underwater type, type, type questions? And I really don't want to see Superman popping up in, in, in the next one. But Marie, you can see what I'm saying. And I'm overstating it deliberately here in the sense that as you open up and expand on the franchise, you don't want to suddenly have like a world of Avengers characters, you know, coming to visit or to mine uh, vibranium or something. Tell me if you share that concern at all, because I think that would sort of dilute the, the strength of Black Panther. I like the fact that it creates its own world and stays also, within it. I also like the fact that it creates its own world, but I don't mind when characters from other universes pop in. I think that's kind of cameo wise, not as you know major characters, but just as an acknowledgement that the Marvel Universe is this vast thing. I think there's something probably problematic about getting all these famous, well-paid actors to even agree to do a cameo. And I wouldn't want to dilute the, the franchise of Black Panther because it really is its own self-contained thing, like you said in the first movie. Um, I, I wanted to ask you what you thought about the fact that they made a conscious decision not to use a digital uh, version of Chadwick Boseman, even like in a cameo, uh, like they have done in the Star Wars films where people who are gone, like Carrie Fisher, still show up in the movies because they are able to make a digital version. What's your what's your opinion about these digital actors, Mike? Um, I think it was a smart move not to do that here because the, the film makes the point emphatically that the king is dead, the king is gone, and he's in our memories and so on, but I don't want him suddenly like digitally reappearing, whether whether actually reappearing or in someone's dream or whatever, because what happens then is it, it, it's it's a slippery slope. What happens then is uh, no one's ever gone forever, are they? They can always pop up like that. And, and to me, it just seems like at that point, it's the special effects getting the upper hand, like the fact that we can do it. So let's do it. Let's bring him back. Well, is he truly gone then? And so that would take away, I think, some of the somber tone that that needs to be there. They have to acknowledge that the king really is gone. If you go the other route, he'd constantly pop up or potentially like these, he's vacationing underwater at the moment or something. And, you know, that's the sort of thing. And I'm being I'm being snide about it. But you can see the, the point I'm making. At that point, you might as well have a digital Humphrey Bogart or something, you know, like and like anyone could pop up again. And I and I, I think, again, I, I'm not as keen on the idea of people from other franchises popping in here, but even by way of cameos. And in that same line of thought, I'm not keen on having characters within the Black Panther world who've died, who've gone away, popping up again, reappearing, because then what would it mean? In, in other words, you know, death itself would just be a plot contrivance, right? Because you could always bring them back somehow. The voice of authority, if you will, whispering in somebody's ear, if only in a dream. So anyway, long story short, I think it's a smart move not to have them digitally reappear. I think it would have been nice to have one one scene that could have been a flashback, you know, not that he's still around, but that it could have just given us one more one more moment. This obviously was a very well received movie. I think probably did great monetarily. There was a huge 
cardboard cutout sort of thing outside one of the theaters when it came out. And lots of people wanted to take selfies of themselves with it. So given that it's such a people-pleasing movie, do you think it had any aspects to it that might end up getting a nomination for an Academy Award? It has been a big commercial hit, and it has what in the industry they call legs. A lot of movies open big on the weekend, certainly superhero movies, but sometimes they fall off pretty quickly. It could the box office could drop 50% from the first weekend to the second. This film has held up extremely well as you and I are speaking, and so that works in its favor. And what really works in its favor is not all superhero movies are created equal in the sense that some of them are just meant to be big box office, popcorn eating and so on. But as you and I said at the outset, the fact that the audience was so attentive, so devoted, this film has a kind of special following, you know, more emotional following than most of them do. For that reason, I think there'll be momentum to certainly give it, a, you know, Academy Award consideration, obviously in the technical categories, but also I would think in the acting categories, you have enough, you know, not just Angela Bassett, you have enough other actors in it who might well get, you know, supporting actor, actress nominations and so on. So I usually try to avoid the crystal ball gazing in that respect, but I think it's a pretty safe assumption that this movie will get quite a few nominations. And, and of course, the fact that it's being released in the fall season has that in mind. They're thinking about that, too. As we approach year-end awards ceremonies, whether the Oscars or others, this is a film that certainly will be mentioned. And I will say, I don't, I don't know that it's he's a contender for Best Director, but I do like anything Ryan Coogler does. So, you know, one more feather in his cap. So let's talk about the Banshees movie. Now, I'm not sure I said the name of that town right. In Sharon, is that how it's said, Mike? Yes. Yeah. It is. Okay. So this is, I want to call it a dark comedy. How do you want to jump into this? Because it's such an unusual movie. I'm not quite sure where to start. Well, one place to start would be with Martin McDonough, who, of course, is the, the director and, and writer and so on. He's primarily known as a playwright. I've seen a lot of his work on stage. In fact, his work's been done at rep stage at the college and elsewhere. But The Beauty Queen of Lainan, A Skull in Connemara, Lonesome West, Cripple of Inishment, The Pillow Man, Hangman, uh, on and on. He's done a lot of plays. So anyway, we're not here to talk about his theater work, but he's primarily known as a playwright. And he has directed several films. In Bruges is the one that's most directly relevant to us today, because that's a film from 2008 that stars Brendan Gleeson and, and Colin Farrell, the stars of the film we're talking about. Another film that people may know of his is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri which, you know, was uh, starring Francis McDormand. So, so, you know, there are films by him that people may well know. Now, directly to your question, Marie, having seen most of his plays and, and read most of them as, as well, there is a darkly comic sensibility that Martin McDonough has. And sometimes things are ha-ha funny. Sometimes they're kind of disturbing funny, or you're not even sure if it's meant to be funny. And, and that that's the edge that it has. And this film definitely has that. So why don't I'll hand it off to you again now, speaking of hands, and to talk a bit about what actually happens here that really is like borderline grotesque in terms of the storyline. So I shy away from describing such things, so I'll let you describe them. I'll start by saying that what I found intriguing about it is it's a story about two men who have been friends their, for, I guess, their whole lives. And one day, one of them tells the other one, he's done. He is over him. He, he doesn't want to see him anymore, doesn't want to talk to him again. And of course, the friend is, you know, blindsided and upset and trying at first to find some way to make amends, to first understand, you know, what happened, why, and then to see if there's anything he can do to salvage the situation. P.S. He can't. 
it's a, you know, the main character played by Colin Farrell has a sister that he lives with. She is, you know, also trying to, you know, figure out where she belongs in, you know, the pecking order of this small little town that they live in where everybody knows your business. So it's, it's, and it's actually three stories. There's also a young man who's trying to discover himself where he belongs in this group. I think it's got three threads going at once. But of course, the main one is the two men and their friendship. And the reason I thought this was such an intriguing story is because I think this happens to people throughout life. Sometimes you have a friend or you're the friend who just comes to the end of the life of that friendship before the other one is ready to give it up. But should we go further and describe what actually happens in terms of the uh, the frayed or even destroyed friendship? That's why I was handing off to you and, you know, bad pun with hands, but in terms of what actually happens here. Well, the friend tells him, you know, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to I'm going to cut off my fingers one by one. And he's a violinist. So the fact that he would mutilate himself, which would you know prevent him from enjoying what seems like the one thing he has left besides drinking at the pub. It's serious. You know, he must be really serious. But you also think it sounds like the sort of threat somebody makes that they don't intend to actually follow through with, but he does. So, you know, there's obviously a question here about whether this man has lost his mind. Well, you know what? I've got to confess, and I'm happy to confess, that I didn't exactly buy the premise. And I, I like Martin McDonough as, as a playwright and as a film director and so on. But this was a case where I thought the premise was really forced. And, you know, I can understand that friends would grow apart and even the extreme measure of, of shunning a former friend and doing something extreme. But to cut off one's own fingers as a way of sort of saying, well, let's go away. Stop bothering me. If, if you come back again, I'll cut off another finger. The story follows its own logic, but I wasn't quite buying the logic of it. And that's really at the most basic visceral, literal, visceral gut level reaction. I'm just not quite buying this. And I, I said to a friend right after the screening where we were watching, I said, you know, I never quite bought the premise. And he said, well, they never quite bought the movie. And I said, no, I really didn't. I mean, it's, it's well acted and it does follow through on its own internal logic. But I was questioning that internal logic. It just wasn't quite there for me. The other thing I wanted to pick up on is something you mentioned. You mentioned three plot elements or thematic elements, I would add a fourth to it, namely that this story takes place in 1923 during the Irish Civil War. And so they're in, in, in a, a fictional town, you know, in a Sharon, and it's an island unto itself in all kinds of ways. It's really insular. In the early 20th century, they're still living in a much earlier lifestyle, if you will. Uh, you, you hardly are aware of the modern world. This is a traditional rural Irish village. And the mainland is nearby, but there, there's water between and just enough water that it's like another world. And one thing that I liked about the film was that what happens on that island is a kind of microcosm in terms of internal stress, tension, violence, self-inflicted violence in, in this case. And yet across the water, they occasionally hear the gunshots and the explosions of the Irish Civil War. And it's mentioned by some of the characters but it's something that's almost subliminal. And so symbolically, I like to think oftentimes in terms of, okay, the microcosm is that dispute or disputes on the island. The macrocosm, of course, is Irishmen fighting Irishmen just across the water. And I kind of like the, the fact that McDonough not only introduced that into the storyline, but kept it as something that was essentially offstage but occasionally brought to mind for us. And for me, it actually helped to lift it out of that immediate story. Because once it gets locked into that, 
I don't want to sound gross about this, but it's sort of a, a finger by finger narrative as you go from scene to scene. Well, how many fingers will this guy have left before something changes here? And in my case, because I'm never entirely buying the premise, it was never difficult to watch because you have two fine actors in it and, and you have, you know, a, a lot of environmental, I'll say color, if you will. A lot of the secondary characters are literally kind of colorful, the people hanging out in pubs, if you will. It's a vibrant uh, culture that way in, in, the, in the town. But the fact that, you know, I appreciated having that larger world to think about occasionally. And even though I'm not buying the central premise, I can accept the, the, the central notion that they're playing out in small form what's going on in larger form just across the water. Now, it's not an exact parallel by any means, but symbolically, I kind of like that connection. You know, I did buy into the premise because I sort of approached it as if it was a fairy tale, because it was sort of this, you know, beautiful area of the world that the scenery in this uh, it's worth watching just for the scenery it's just absolutely gorgeous so the idea of the you know the person that cuts off their fingers just sort of seemed like you know that would actually happen in a fairy tale world so i didn't have a hard time picking that up as you know the logical conclusion once you've threatened to do it you know it's like you know chekhov's gun something's got to happen to either he either has to do it or he has to back down from saying he was going to do it so i wasn't totally surprised when he did and in terms of the pub, by the way, you know, they built that for the uh, movie, but they didn't really have an actual permit for it. So after the movie, they had to tear it down, which had to be sort of a disappointment to the people who lived there. But the fairy tale aspect of it, I thought was the most charming part of it. And I'm glad you mentioned that the director is, you know, he, he does a lot of plays because it has that sort of theatricality to it. I could see this being done as a play as opposed to a movie. Well, my understanding is he actually was initially thinking of it in those terms, and, and then it, it became more of a movie, and it still has very much a theatrical quality. I keep making this bad pun, but but the, the movie is essentially what in theater we'd call a two-hander. And so this is the case where it really is, you know, it's Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell who'd work together, as we say, in, in, in Bruges, bring them back together again. And it's just that give and take between them. That's, that, that sparring is, is really enjoyable within the film. And yes, you're right. You know, it can be taken as a sort of fable. I think that's probably ultimately, if you're already going to accept the premise, it has to be at that kind of storytelling level. And, and certainly Martin McDonough as a playwright and director has worked in that quasi-fabulous realm before. And, and so I can accept all that. In terms of just the beauty of the scenery and watching it, just be prepared for the fact that that lush green landscape occasionally has some red blood splattered on it. So, you know, there are some more gruesome reminders of, of what's actually happening within the story. There's also donkeys that live inside the house that are, you know, pets and, you know, revenge by burning someone's house down. I mean, really extreme ways of reacting to situations, which is, again, I thought kind of made it more of a fable that you're following and the vicissitudes of these two guys trying to outdo each other in leave me alone. No, I won't leave you alone. Well, now I'll leave you alone. But in terms of the story about a friendship, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that dealt with it this way. I'm sort of thankful I haven't. <laughs> so any award-winning performances here, aside from the cinematography? Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, both of the performances, the central performances are really strong, but, you know, this is a, essentially a, a little film in terms of theatrical distribution, in terms of recognition. So it's not, it's not going to have a, a huge audience clamoring for that. It's pretty much on the art house circuit in a lot of ways. And when I say art house circuit, I know it's playing also in, you know, in, in multiplexes and so on, but it still has a smaller audience, I would say. And as with a lot of Martin McDonough's work, I mean, it, it deserves respect. It merits that. 
but I don't think that in terms of the Academy Awards, it's necessarily enough people thinking about it that way. You know, I'm getting at like even if they like it, but at year end when they have to drop what I call like the short list, I'm not sure it would make that short list. But but Marie, to your point, there certainly are aspects of it in terms of the acting in particular that would that would merit that kind of consideration. I would say that if you go to see this, you should also rent in Bruges and see them as a set because I think one of the things that I was looking forward to going in was the interplay between the between the two uh, leads. And my theater, by the way, had lots of people in it. I was sort of surprised. Yeah, I am too, actually. I, I mean, the film, you know, it's doing well by what I call art house standards, but it's not exactly big box office. So I'm, I'm actually encouraged. I'm happy to hear what you're reporting. It was a good-sized crowd. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.